We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 366 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and while next week I'll be talking to somebody else, today I've got something special planned for you. While I will regale you with a bit of transfer news to start, the main course is definitely the history of Catalan football that I'm very excited to share with you. First things first, and the only official news at this moment, Spotify Camp Nou is the official name of Barcelona Stadium, as the strategic partnership officially kicked off today. We've talked about the Spotify thing in the past, so I don't have too much for you. I will say I'm enjoying the, it's not even jokes at my expense, but the different stuff that, yes, of course, our podcast is on Spotify. We have no special deal with them or whatever it is, but yeah, certainly it's, it's a fun thing that I do host an audio podcast, and they, that being Barcelona, are now working with Spotify exclusively with Shirt Sponsor and on the stadium and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, Spotify, as far as companies go, as I've mentioned before, I, I think difficult when it comes to corporations to decide the morality of said co- corporations and Spotify have made their their good decisions and their bad decisions if you will I, I think again following them here in the United States they are just an atypical gigantic corporation and, and what they mean for the music industry th- that's for those who I think are a bit more in that scene than me to decide but what I know is the number that they gave Barcelona which actually we don't know that exact number but we do know that it was a uh, that number was a bit down, as we talked about, and I, I sent people a few weeks back where I believe it was somewhere in the 80 million or s- between 60 and 80, where in the past it was between 90 and 110. And, you know, that valuation around all those club shirt sponsors actually down in the post-pandemic time, which is, again, interesting enough. But as long as Barcelona is getting market value on those kind of deals, then those are things we just kind of have to, have to accept. And uh, again, when it comes to the sports washing that is going on at other clubs, and some of the issues that other club sponsors are taking part in, I think Barcelona could have done a lot worse than Spotify Camp No, and I don't think this in any way means that the club have sold their soul in this case. All right, but speaking of selling their soul, is Barcelona going to sell their soul, or at least 60 million euros worth, to Leeds United for Rafinha? So I'm hoping that by the time you have this in your ears, and by the time I have my next show, that he is not yet an FC Barcelona player officially, but that it's to the point where it's over the line and I'm able to announce something or have a conversation with someone who would be in the know about Rafinha. But at present time, the situation with he and Dembele, it seems like they are, I believe for a long time they were working 
in tandem, right? It was Rafinha or Dembele, but the recent news from the last 24 hours said, no, it's going to be Rafinha, but it could also be Dembele. Reportedly, the club offered Dembele between 5 and 6 million euros, which if you look at a lot of other clubs' salary structures is, you know, one of the highest paid players on the teams. But as I said, for Barcelona, we've talked about for many times, when the likes of Busquets and Alba and Frankie de Jong and even Ansu's new contract are floating around, then Dembele is not going to be one of the top five or six paid players. Six million actually puts them somewhere around where Neto and Umtiti are, which is, again, pretty astounding to where Barcelona uh, are in such problems with their salary structure. Uh, so if Dembele were to resign for six million euros, I think that would be, uh, based on the Barcelona's salary structure at the present time, fair value for him. But again, in other clubs around the world, it wouldn't make as much sense, which is probably as you can expect, why he's having so much difficulty finding an offer, that being Dembele, and why Barcelona at $6 million is still a 40% reduction of his previous annual salary, which is pretty incredible. And then Rafinha, on the other side, apparently he's also offered a €6 million Euro contract, and Barcelona has, at present time, reached the start of an agreement, so whatever that tends to mean, with leads for Rafinha after Chelsea put in a €60 million Euro bid. And that being the former Barcelona player, Deco, leading the negotiations. And apparently, the Brazilian is holding out for Barcelona. And Rafinha hasn't agreed to the move to Chelsea or apparently an offer from Newcastle, which we know is probably a bit higher in salary. With their new ownership, they have no worries about spending 8 to $10 million on a, you'd assume, a starting winger. Because for, for Newcastle, every player they're bringing in is still likely for the next two or three windows coming in to basically be a starting player. I mean, that's what any of their new transfers are going to be. They're, they're trying to retool their entire starting lineup. So if ever they bring in a guy, it's supposed to be in enhancing their top-level talent. Um, but Rafinha, hey, if he wants just Barcelona, as I said or earlier in the week, that if Barcelona are going to be patient and, you know, they're going to have to fork over some kind of money. Of course, that's the difficulty of Rafinha still having a year on his contract. Yeah, you can have the total agreement of the player. But if Leeds United isn't totally happy with the agreement and they're not willing to take it in installments because apparently it's going to be three installments from Barcelona, which is unsurprising. And as I've said before, too, where whenever Barcelona are paying for a player in installments, again, Ferran Torres, while you, you can say that he was overpriced at 55 million euros, the fact that they were able to get his salary at 5 million euros per year for you know, basically a, a starting caliber player and a player who's one of the the best young Spanish forward prospects that they have in the country. I thought it was a fair deal, especially, again, paying Man City in not too out, outrageous installments, but getting him for $11 million every year for five years is totally fair for those installments. But for Rafinha, apparently, this is supposed to be three of $60 million, so that'd be, what, about $20 million plus per year, which is still, yeah, a hefty price. And uh, we'll have to think more about, and I'll discuss with people who know better than me, whether Rafinha's quote-unquote worth it, because I think at that price tag, he's immediately going to be coming in and expected to produce. So what will he produce? I think we'll, that, that'll be left to be seen. Because if not, that $6 million, as we know from other players around Barcelona, can be a difficult number to get off the books. And while some of these guys are at that number and some of them aren't, let's quickly go over the departures. Uh, it basically all is done and dusted, and we're just ready for the official announcement for Clement Langley to Tottenham. I actually went on the Tottenham Podspur podcast earlier in the week because they wanted to hear from me about Langley when it was pretty much official. And, you know, I actually talked myself into basically telling the Tottenham people that it might not be that bad. I think Barcelona have truly, I mean, Langley at the moment, he they've truly seen his rock bottom, I think, in his career. I mean, he just turned 27 less than two weeks ago. And while it seems like 
for his 12 million euro salary in total net that Barcelona are still going to pay about five of the of the 12 million, which is again hefty for Langley. But you do still get seven million euros of wages off the books, which is, I mean, what you need to do for a backup center back. But for Tottenham, they might be looking at a starting center back. So at the moment, his salary isn't crazy for, or uh, that it's a reasonable figure, I should say, for a starting Premier League center back. That's not that bad. And with a contract until 2026 and a desire to go to the World Cup in 2022, you know, knowing this is the one that he'll try to go to in his prime, this is really, or uh, do it and thrive or you don't do it and you kind of get punished as in like his career could really go in a, the wrong direction if he can't figure something out at Tottenham. But looking at their center back situation, and I know very few Tottenham people are listening to this, but, you know, I don't think that Christian Romero or Devinson Sanchez or Eric Dyer are any players that he can't win a starting spot over. I mean, Tottenham and Conte are probably going to play three at the back anyway, which gives even him, him even more opportunities to get a regular rotation spot. But I think he has the ability in the Premier League to play his way into a starting spot. And they asked me about his passing as well. And I told them that, as what we saw, where in Spain, you know, the ball moves a bit slower, that teams are a little more adept, we'll say, at just getting into a low block and slowing these games down in the Premier League. It's a bit easier to get opened up. Not that it's faster or more athletic. I think that, that stuff, I, I hate all that stuff, but it's just the tempo of the game. I mean, it's the, the way the Spanish game is played with the ball a bit more. So those center backs of Barcelona in particular are expected to break through the midfield lines and to break lines and to be able to get a 30, 40 yard pass just on a dime or 30 meter pass or whatever and put it on a dime, put it right to feet and, and get it right. But in the Premier League, you know, he's going to have the opportunity to use his passing that's going to be good enough to get it up to his midfield shufflers. And then they're going to be the ones to try to break those lines or get it out to his wingers and have them take on, you know, take on the brunt of the attacking. So I, I think that his passing is going to be just what Tottenham are asking of him and nothing more. I mean, his best season was in that 18-19 season under Valverde. He just fit that 4-4-2 system really well when he was mainly just focusing on defending and that was his job. Hey, just step out, try to react, but with PK, if PK stepped, then then you stay back and I think Lele has versatility in that. So this is definitely a, again, a make it or break it moment for him. And even last year, he made 27 appearances and he was a four-choice center back. So it's not like he was completely non-existent like Samu Umtiti, who Barcelona are definitely having a hard Hard time finding a club to take on those wages, even though he reduced his salary and all that stuff, and Barcelona extended his contract in the same way. You know, it's MTT <laughs> still going to have to do a little bit of work. I mean, not that he's going to pay his own salary, but I, I think it's going to be tough for him to reignite his career because, again, Lingley is a player who's never had some kind of major injury. He's still technically in his prime. Umtiti at 28, he's had those knee injuries. Again, his knees are probably in his mid-30s, and who knows how many years he truly has left. So him going to France, you know, not the Premier League, but likely back to France, it tells you that, you know, this is going to be on the downturn, even though he still has, what, five more years left on that deal. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy and all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content, everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. And then next up, we either go to Spain or to Italy for Ricky Puj and Oscar Mingetha. I, I think if you, I had to guess, Mingetha would be the one to stick around, even though Puj, I think, is the one who always says he wants to stick around. Mingetha, I think, would be the one who'd say, no, I'm going to fight for it this year. And with his salary number, Barcelona, I mean, it's, <laughs> how do I say, it's not that much of a win to get him off your books. That being Mingetha, it's not like he's paid anything egregious at all. He makes like one twentieth of what Busquets makes. And I know he doesn't really play, but as your fourth or fifth center back or sixth, not even fourth, but if you're fi- as your fifth or sixth center back, Barcelona could do a lot worse than Oscar Mingetha, to be honest. I mean, that's kind of what I think he projects to be. But at another club, you know, he could fight for a starting spot, but I'm not exactly sure what his level is. Uh, and then same thing with Bouge. I mean, they're at the age now where they're entering their prime soon. They're in their 22, 23. So they're not necessarily the, the hot, young, new spring chickens. They're players that should be full professionals at this point, and I think they still have a little bit of growth to do. And then finally, Martin Brothwaite. 
if I had to guess, he's going to be, I mean, obviously he'll be the last of that group to probably leave or try to find a new club, but I think he's going to take a little bit of prodding and convincing uh, because even last year he didn't really play much. And I think Martin Brothwaite, having spent time in, in Middlesbrough and some of those locations to have a house in Barcelona, he's in his, he's got his family. I think for Brothwaite being the age he is, unlike Puj and Negatha who have their partners, but, you know, their, their partners can kind of get up and go. They don't have kids. And for Brothwaite to have his family all set up, he's in his early 30s. So I, I think he's a little more set up with his family, established with his family. And I think he just prefers to kind of stay in the house that he bought in the beautiful city of Barcelona. So I think he's going to be the most difficult of that bunch to convince to go elsewhere. So, all right, that was pretty much the news. As I said, I'm a bit concerned, of course, that Rafinha or Dembele will have some resolution in the next few hours. But before that happens, I really hope you enjoy this detailed history of Catalan football. There's a lot of information stuffed in here, so I understand if you even do it in installments. Totally fair. I mentioned it at the end, but if you take anything away from this, I hope it is that the results of a few games decided a lot of things back then. That was one of the main things I learned from doing all this research. Clubs lived and died then with one loss or one win, and it even came down to how many players showed up. If a player decided, hey, you know, I didn't like the way that game went or it wasn't my favorite, so they joined another club, and now you've only got eight players or nine players or ten players, and now you don't have enough to field the team and then the club is, is done, right? Like, we're talking about Sunday League. That's what we're talking about, the, the level that, not, not skill-wise, but the level that they would have been at at the time in terms of keeping things together and keeping things organized. So, you know, it was one of the most research-heavy pieces I've done related to Barcelona. So it's a bit more documentary style than you're used to. You're going to hear the music underneath it as well, which I've gotten mixed results on that. But if you like what you hear, though, Please let me know that you want more content like that. It, it does take a lot of work, so I can probably do a few of these over the summer, potentially, again, even spitting some in mid-seasons mid if there are a time off. But, yeah, this is the kind of stuff where I enjoyed doing it, but, again, it was a ton of work, so I really hope you enjoy this. And uh, so here we go. Catalan football is looking like it's back on the up, with Barcelona back as players in the transfer market, well maybe, Espanyol able to stay around in the first division after getting promoted a season ago, and Girona back in the first division for the second time in their history via a sixth place finish down in the second division and winning via the playoffs. No Madrid-based teams were sent down last season, so that means the Spanish capital still has better representation, including Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Hedafe, and Rai Vallecano. But Catalonia's three teams next season are going to be tied for the most ever once again. The closest it came to being four was actually the 1949-1950 and 1950-51 seasons, when Gymnastique was relegated and Yeda was promoted. But don't worry, we'll have plenty of that history stuff today. I hope you came to learn something today, because with our recent history about Johan Cruyff, I've really been thinking a lot about Catalan history, the role, yeah, Johan Cruyff had played in it, sure, but the history of Catalan football dates back decades before Johan Cruyff, so I felt like the appropriate place to start was at the very beginning, and this is the history of Catalan football. Let's do it. Of course, we're talking about history 100 to 120 years ago. We still have to start at the very beginning. And we start with the oldest football club in Catalonia, in Palamos Club de Football, founded in 1898. Very similar to many of the origins of the Basque clubs, it was founded by someone who had studied in England. Like many smaller Spanish clubs, they have been on the brink of closing their doors on a number of occasions, even going six years between 1954 and 1960 without playing a match. The glory years came from 1989 to 1995, 
where the team from Costa Brava played six seasons in the second division, before succumbing again to their financial reality and finding themselves dropped to the fourth division. At present time, they play in the Primera Catalana, the sixth division of Spanish football and the highest league in Catalonia. Their most famous three players are probably Albert Roca, the recent fitness coach under Ronald Koeman, the Argentine Carlos Alfaro Moreno, and the former Andorran national team center back Anthony Lima. As will be a theme moving forward with this, not every club does survive. Even though Palmeiras has found a way to stay up, the next club we're going to talk about, that being the oldest from the city of Barcelona, did not. Yes, just one month before Juan Gamper formed FC Barcelona, Catala SC was formed, playing regularly with only Catalans and were early members of the Catalan Football Association, with more on that later. Catala CS did eventually bring in some foreign players from Scotland, but they weren't enough to save them from relegation in 1915, a very disappointing negative 60 goal differential and zero points in eight games. They played in the Catalan Football Championship for a few seasons, but 1920 would be their last and the club was dissolved. Shortly thereafter, Hispania Athletic Club was formed in 1900, peeling off members of Catala CS who were unhappy with the way the things were going over there. Their first match ever was against FC Barcelona, a match they won 2-1. Hispania also benefited from foreign players and the dismantling of other clubs, as they were able to bring in Scottish workers from the Fabra and Coates de San Andreu factory after dissolving of Eschos FC. In November of their first year, they had their rematch with FC Barcelona, this tied to inaugurate Barca's new field near the Hotel Casanovas, a result that ended in a scoreless draw. Unfortunately, I don't have a name for this field for you because remember, Barca's first official home, the Camp de la Industria, didn't come until 1909. Hispania's biggest claim to fame is being the first winners of the Copa Macaya. Before we get to that tournament, we have to discuss the formation of the Catalan Football Federation, an organization that still exists today. So in the fall of 1900, the final four of the four teams that originally formed the Football Sociedad de Catalunya in November was Sociedad Española de Football, which today, after some name changes, is better known as Espanol. The first federation president was Edward Ellison, and he oversaw the birth of sanctioned Catalan football competitions. And the story, of course, starts with the Copa Macaya, named for Espania's honorary president, Afonso Macaya, who donated the Macaya Cup trophy for what was the first regulated football competition in Spain. Any team in Spain could register, but due to travel, only one non-Barcelona-based team registered, that being Club Tarragona. Hispania, Barca, and Espanol were also joined by Sociedad Franco Española and Sociedad Deportiva Santanach, who withdrew from the tournament prior to its start. So in January of 1901, the Copa Macaya began at Barcelona's field at the Hotel Casanovas. Sociedad Franco Española were not long for this world, losing 10-0 and 14-0 to Hispania, and 13-0 and 14-0 losses to Barcelona. Tarragona with two 5-0 losses to Espania and 14-0 and 18-0 losses to Barca and Espanyol withdrew after the first round, contesting suspicious refereeing in favor of Espania after losing to them 2-0. That left the final match to be played between the two favorites coming in, Espania and Barca, at Espania's new home on Montaner Street in April. A Barca own goal gave Espania the early lead, but the competition's top scorer, Juan Gamper, then still known as Hans, scored his 31st goal of the competition to draw at level. With Espania only needing a draw to win the Copa Macaya, a second Barcelona goal was ruled offside, and Espania won the first competition in Catalan football history. The bad news for Espania? Captain and top player Gustavo Green soon left for Barcelona, a move that if it had gone the other way could have very well changed the outcomes for these different clubs. They also lost two other key pieces, but were still favorites for the 1902 version of the competition. 
The club president became Allison, a famous fencing teacher in the city and the man who, as I previously mentioned, became the first president of the Catalan Football Federation as it's known today, in collaboration with Juan Gamper. While the second edition of the Copa Macaya still had España and Barcelona as the favorites, it was the latter who wound up conquering everybody, that being Hispania on both occasions, and they won all their other games in the competition, winning the first ever trophy in FC Barcelona's history. For Hispania, after not having the funds to travel to the Copa de la Cornación, they dissolved the next season due to a lack of players. By the way, the Copa de la Cornación was a competition held in Madrid, which saw Barca beat Madrid CF for the first time ever in their first unofficial meeting ever and a select group called Biscaya, made up of the best from the Basque country, beat Barca 2-1 in the final, Barca's only loss of the season. Next came the Copa Barcelona in 1903, which FC Barcelona also won. Their only non-wins in the competition came with two 2-2 draws of Espanyol, a precursor to their budgeting rivalry, one that I don't really think would hit its real timber until decades later. But it must be said, by that point, Espanyol was gaining a little bit of steam having won the 1903 Copa Macaya, which was the last version of that competition. It was at that point that the Campeonato Catalunya, which I'll be calling the Catalan Football Championship from here on out, was formed officially by the Catalan Football Federation. This competition would feature 36 different teams from 1903 to 1940, with the winners also representing Catalonia in the Copa del Rey, named in honor of King Alfonso XIII and the successor to the Coronation Cup that had taken place a year before to celebrate, well, his coronation. But back in Catalonia, the Catalan Football Championship should be remembered as the way the Catalan clubs became professional. In 1917, the league officially turned professional and also added a second division. From the 1903-04 season to the 1939-40 season, both won by Espanyol, by the way, there were only five clubs that actually win the Catalan Football Championship. Barca won it 21 times, Espanyol 11, CE Europa once, CE Sabadell FC once, and three times by a club called FC España de Barcelona, who won it three times. FC España had their glory years from the 1910s, winning the competition in 1913, 1914, and 1917. In 1914, they even made the Copa del Rey final, losing to Athletic Club, having lost to another Basque side, racing to Irene, in the semi-final the year before. It's at this point that I should mention that the Basques were at the top of the footballing world, at least in Spain, 100 years ago. In typical fashion of the time, FC España saw a decline when the players left and even a name change to Garcia FC in 1923, which couldn't save them from relegation. They merged with CE Europa in 1931, becoming Catalonia FC, but had to cut their 1931-32 season short by three games due to financial issues. Prior to the start of the next season, they became CE Europa and FC España were officially a part of history. Speaking of a part of history, this is where things do overlap a little bit and get somewhat confusing, as teams like FC Barcelona and Espanyol were now competing in multiple competitions. As a little aside, there was technically a sixth team to win the Catalan Championship, a team called X Sporting Club that won three straight titles from 1906 to 1908. In 1909, many of their players joined Espanyol, and their history was officially merged into the club from Cornea. Espanyol also has the honor of winning the last edition of the competition in 1940. Just prior to that, during the Spanish Civil War, there was a competition called the Mediterranean League that was contested between teams from Catalonia and the Valencian community. Barca just beat out Espanyol, with Girona and Valencia tying for fourth with 17 points. The next season, the war prevented Valencian teams to travel, so Barca won not only the Catalan Championship, but also the Catalan League, 
beating out UE Sans by six points for the title. And while it probably goes without saying, Francisco Franco's forces winning the day in the Spanish Civil War certainly stopped any idea and any concept of a Catalan League for a long, long time. Now once again, here's where the timeline gets a bit fuzzy, because FC Barcelona, as of 1920, were competing in the very first edition of the Liga, of which they won the first edition of the Liga. They, along with Real Madrid, Athletic Club, Real Sociedad, and Basai's Hecho and Real Union, all of which qualified as winners of the Copa del Rey. Atletico Madrid, Espanyol, and Sea Europa all qualified as Copa del Rey runners-up, and the tenth and final team was decided through a knockout tournament that was won by Racing Santander. So as you can tell with that ten, there was a heavy influence of Basque sides in that first edition of the Liga, with Catalonia actually second on the list with three teams. I already mentioned CE Europa, which unlike many of the teams that you may not have heard of that are now dissolved, CE Europa is still, maybe not going strong, but still very much alive 115 years after being founded. They just finished up playing in the fourth tier of Spanish football, but will unfortunately be playing in the fifth tier next season after being relegated. They won the Catalan Championship in their golden era of the 1920s, beating FC Barcelona in 1923 to the title in a playoff they won 1-0. The 1923 Copa del Rey saw them down Sevilla and Sporting Gijón, before falling to the powerhouse athletic club 1-0 at the newly built Le Court Stadium. They finished second in the Catalan Championship four more times that decade, getting the invite to the Liga in 1929, and playing three seasons in the top division before relegation. While they have never returned, a combination of financial troubles in the 1930s that we already discussed pushed them down the tables, and with some poor results, it doomed them in the lower divisions for a while. But they did finally have some more success in the late 90s, 70 years after being last in the spotlight. They won the Copa Catalunya in both 1997 and 98, beating FC Barcelona both times. They won 3-1 in 1997 against Bobby Robson's side, and won 4-3 on penalties in 1998 after a 1-0 draw. Their third cup came in 2015, topping Girona 2-1. Oh no, Dan, another cup? Yes, but we'll make it quick. So back in 1989, after the dictatorship was no more, the Catalan Football Federation started a new competition for the region on the back of another competition that had started called the Government Cup in 1984, and the participation from Barcelona and Espanyol raised the profile of said competition. It's seen some different variations over the years and varying degrees of participation from the larger clubs, with the short of it being that if Barca and Espanyol try, they usually come home with the title. But Barca almost never goes with their best 11 still winning a record 9 times and finishing runners-up 10 times. There have been 15 different winners of the Copa Catalunya, with CE Ospelolet the reigning champions, having won in the 2019-20 season. On four occasions, a sister competition, the Supercopa de Catalunya, has taken place that has been contested by either Barcelona and Espanyol or Barcelona and Girona. Barcelona were the victors twice, Espanyol once, and Girona won the last version of that competition in 2019. Alright, so if you're still here, I don't want this history lesson to go too much longer, but I do want to mention the other five teams that have taken part in the Liga over the years. Sabadell spent the longest in the first division, 14 seasons actually, and are currently playing in the third division, having been relegated last season from the second. They are historically the third most successful team in Catalonia, making the 1935 Copa del Rey final before falling to Sevilla. Domestically, they first arrived in the Liga for the 1943-44 season, and got as high as 5th for the 1946-47 season, finishing above Real Madrid. But it wasn't until their longest stretch in the Liga from 1965 to 1972 when they had their best days. It was a long way up for the team that was founded in 1903, but in the 1968-69 season, they finished 4th, 
earning them a spot in the Intercities Fairs Cup. While they did lose in the first round, as we know today, European football is European football. They last appeared in the Liga from 1986 to 88, and despite a ton of financial troubles for the last 30 years, they're still staying afloat between the second and third divisions. Gymnastique de Tarragona, or Nastique, was founded in 1886, which would have made it the oldest club in Catalonia, but they didn't start their football team until 1914. While they have only won three Copa Catalonias as their lower tier first place trophies, they have remained in the second or third tier every year since 1942, with the exception of their four seasons in the top division. A three-season stay from 1947-48 to 1949-50 was followed up more than 50 years later by a quick cup of coffee in 2006-07 where they finished 20th. Two other clubs, UE Yeda and CD Kandal, sit at 58th and 60th on the all-time La Liga table out of 62 teams. And even worse, neither of these teams exist today. Yeda played the 1950-51 season in the first division, finishing in 16th place. They were back again in 1993-94, where they finished 19th. In those two seasons combined, they won 13 games, drew 14, and lost 41, finishing with a staggering negative 112 goal differential. The spirit of that club does technically still exist after they were dissolved in 2011, and then Yeda said, we're too big of a city to not have a football team, so they did start one up again. So in theory, the spirit of Yeda lives on. Kandal, meanwhile, spent just the 1956-57 season in the first division, winning seven games, drawing eight, and losing 15. They had started out as Barca's reserve team, having won too many promotions and becoming independent of Barcelona in 1956. However, in 1968, they again became the reserve team, and in 1970, they were merged with another junior side, Athletic Catalonia, and form Barcelona Athletic, as they are again known today as the B team of FC Barcelona. And finally, we have Girona, who first played in the first division in the 2017-18 season. So not only the last of this group, but certainly, with the return now, the most successful of all the other Catalan clubs not named Barcelona and Espanyol at present time. It was a huge accomplishment for a team formed in 1930 and seemingly perennially stuck in the lower divisions to finally reach the top of the mountain. Since Barcelona will be facing off against Girona this season, I'm going to be talking a lot more about that club, I think, as the season goes along, so we'll, I guess, end it there with them. There is also a matter of the Catalonian national team that I could mention, but not only have we run out of time, but I also did a history of that club from a few seasons ago, so just make sure you check on that link. And yeah, I know I look a bit older than I did a few years ago, but the history of the Catalonia national team hasn't changed that much because they're not really an officially, okay, just watch the video, you'll get it. And if you do want an update of that Catalonia national team, I guess put that in the comments below. Let me know if that's really what you need. And I think, I guess that video might need an update too. If you're still here, I wanna give you such a big thank you for just sitting through this. This honestly probably should have been a research paper more than it should have been a YouTube video or a podcast. But in truth, I do hope that you're able to brag slash bore something for your friends just to showcase your knowledge now of Catalonia football. For me, the most interesting theme that I think stood out was the simple fact that, I don't want to say it's a butterfly effect or, or domino effect, but little moments, right? One transfer here, one transfer there, a club having 12 players show up or 15 players show up or 20 players show up. Those were the differences between clubs that are still existing today and ones that have been gone from memory for more than 100 years. Now in the modern age of football where there are 100,000 person stadiums and there's so much money that clubs are just too big to fail at the top, we'll say, 
again, it was really interesting to go back and say, well, what if this had happened? Or what if that had happened? And it's a shame that this club that had such great success, but what did success look like, right? It wasn't a parade in a whole city. It wasn't thousands of fans around the globe or millions of fans around the globe celebrating a club. It was just a few people in a small neighborhood in Barcelona, where a lot of those clubs weren't the second, third, or even fourth largest clubs in those cities. They were just trying to make it at the time. They were just a bunch of group of people who wanted to play football together, a game that they had either brought from England, they were studying abroad, or they knew somebody, or they learned it in Switzerland, like Juan Gamper, and were coming through. And speaking of Juan Gamper, there's certainly a lot more to discuss when it comes to the history of Catalan football and the history of FC Barcelona. Whether it's Juan Gamper, the Spanish Civil War, or so many of the wonderful rivalries with all the teams that I already mentioned here. And those are all things that I would love to discuss at a later date. All right, so that'll wrap up another edition of the show. As I said in that piece, there's still so much to do. I mean, there's, there's probably more important topics that I could have done before this, that being the Spanish Civil War. I still have something on the kidnapping of the former Barcelona and, and sporting Gijon legend. Well, he wasn't only a Barcelona legend, but a sporting Gijon legend in Kini when he was kidnapped for more than a month, uh, which is just a crazy story when he was a Barcelona player. And so there are a lot of other stories of the club's history to do, as you know, for those who've been following me for years. And I get into some of them sometimes, but I really just want to start at the very beginning. So hopefully everything I do here on out, again, this is a podcast form, but if you watched it on YouTube or if you check it out on YouTube, it's a lot more, let's say, audiovisual as well. So while there will be more images for me for other stories, I certainly want to get into those as well. So that'll wrap up another show, as I said. I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Barcelona Pod at Hilton D13. There's a Facebook group you know about, the Close Facebook group. Answer the questions I let you in. Our Patreons are, again, I think the people that I kind of made this for, I know they're the ones who are going to, we'll say, get the most enjoyment out of it if you're really that hardcore about Barcelona. So those are my Patreons. And how I also keep making these shows, always, always appreciated. You can also listen to these shows without the ads over there. It's a little incentive to support the show. And as I said, we are on YouTube. That's where this first debuted if you watched it over there. And while I have been putting a lot of that summer content over here on the podcast, again, it's a little extra just to be able to see the video versions of it. So most importantly, though, thank you so, so much for listening to this edition of the Barcelona podcast. I know it wasn't as fun with all the transfers or we're not talking about matches or anything like that, but I really, really appreciate anyone who's still here with me at this point. So so until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Forza Barca. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.